may be seated. Thank you, Brother Chance. Um, in case you're wondering, I have O positive blood. Uh, I have antibodies, and I've been vaccinated. So I, I just thought I'd throw that out there. And I don't anoint with oil anymore. I use hand sanitizer. And uh, it's... <laughs> I don't know, it's just, just that time. Uh, my grandson-in-law, I'd, I'd say this before I start, uh, wrote a book, and I'm so proud of him. He did a great job. Anyway, the, uh, he wanted me to bring some up here and try to sell them. I'm not a very good salesman, but they're $10, so I expect everybody that I got to buy one. I made little Danny buy one. I say little Danny, he's taller than I am, but he'll always be little Danny, so he bought one. I made Rory buy one. Crystal? Where's Crystal? You gotta buy one, they ten dollars. All the leeches. <laughs> and anybody else, so buy him from me so I can take him. He did a good job on it, so proud of him. And um, good to be in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> a few nights ago, it's uh, it has been traumatic for a, a lot of people. And, you know, the Bible says that uh, it rains on the just and the unjust. And you ought to always remember that if you decide you don't want to live for God anymore and go back out into the world, the only thing that's going to change is your foundation. Wind's going to keep blowing. Rain's going to keep falling. Things are going to keep happening. But if you're built on the rock, it stands. So I had, you know, this has been trying time. The last three or four months, I've buried a good friend that I preached for many, many years. I've buried my father, buried my wife's aunt within two weeks of each other. So it's been traumatic for, for a lot of people. So late one night, my wife was still up uh, watching the radio, and I, I got up, <laughs> and uh, she thought I was asleep, and... Uh, and I'd gotten dressed, and she said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to run down to church. Well, it's awful late. I said, I know, but I'm going to run down there for a while. And so I went down there. I locked the door, and it's cold and dark. And, and uh, so I went in there and flipped on the light and auditorium, walked all the way down the aisle and sat down on the altar. And I could have said this at home, you know, laying in the bed. I could have said it but it just didn't seem right. So I was sitting on the altar, and I said, okay, God, I don't know how all of this is going to end. I really don't. I'm frustrated with some things. I'm tired of dealing with some things in life. You know, I'd like to have a season of, of just, you know, good things happening. But here's what I wanted to come down here and tell you, and then I'm going to go back home. Whatever happens, whatever you decide, whatever answer you give, whether it be yes or no or whatever, here's what I want you to know. I'm never going to give up this name. I will go to my grave believing you have to be born again of the water and spirit. And the Holy Ghost is not just a, something you want extra, but it's necessary 
Because this Bible says that if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So you, you got to have this. So I said, God, I just, I just want to tell you, I'll, I'll die broke, I'll die this, that, but I'm not giving up this truth that I believe to be true. If you want to save somebody else in another way, that's your, your God. But for me and my house, we got to serve the Lord with this truth because I, I can't get by it and I don't want to give it up. And I remember saying, with Jans, I said, and that's all I got to say. I got up and walked back down the aisle, turned the light off, locked the door, went back home. Watched it wasn't very long. I said, it didn't matter. I said what I needed to say. And I'm not going to change. Israel had in their possession something that was a very sacred, and I'm not going to use the word object, but a very sacred representation that connected them to the heavenly. It was called the ark. Sometimes it's referred to as the ark of God. Sometimes it's the ark of the Lord. Many times it's the ark of the covenant. In its construction and the instructions given to Moses, God was very particular with the pattern and how he wanted it done. I'm going to skip away ahead of myself and tell you and when God makes a decision about something and God sets down a precedent and a pattern, He doesn't change that for anybody or any circumstance or any thought process because He has the final say. He told them how long He wanted it to be, about five and a half feet long, three and a half feet wide. And so, okay, had gold laid inside and out, ringlets on the side that they could drive staves through so that the Levitical priesthood could put it on their shoulders and carry it, cherubims on each end, a mercy seat in the middle that represented the presence of God, various things inside the ark, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod which had budded, the golden jar. So everything meant something. It was a message from God to Israel. This is not just an object or a piece of furniture. What you have in your possession represents me to you. It is sacred. There's things that I want done with it and around it, and there's things that I don't want done. I don't want any earthly human hand to ever touch it. Now, I want you to remember this phrase, and I'll get to it later, oh, by the way. Just, just remember that phrase there, oh, by the way. But this, this symbol of God's presence to Israel was so vital to some. My favorite character in Scripture outside of Jesus has always been David. I mean, some of the people you meet in the Word of the Lord, they're, you know, they're 900 years old, they die the next chapter. So you don't really know them that well. This is a guy we grow up with. You meet him when he's a teenager, he beats the brains out of a giant and kills a lion and a bear. So you, you grow up with him. He has his faults, he has his mistakes, he has his failures, he has his victories, he has his successes, and you grow up with that. 
And we all know, y'all sitting, I'm not telling you anything this great pastor hadn't told you, my, my dearest friend and, and all of that, and my older sister. Oh, sorry, Arlene, just thought I'd throw that out there. I'm not preaching anything you hadn't already heard. What I am saying to you is that when David became king, and I don't have time to go through all the things he went through to get to that place, but he did in spite of everything going on, he did sit down on that throne and became the greatest king of Israel. I mean, whatever I could take, we, we could take everything he went with and preach a, a sermon from it. But what I'm going to tell you is in spite of all the tragedy and hell and heartache that he had to go through, the thing that God had said, he's going to be king, finally arrived and it happened, and he is anointed king. They go through all of their thing, their ritual of, of making coronate in a king, and David is there. He's got responsibilities. He's wealthy. He's got a massive army. He's got people that will be loyal. I mean, this guy's life is amazing. But here's the point. He sits on that throne. He's got scepters. He's got gold and silver. He's got marble walls. He's got a palace. He's got men that will die for him. He's got men that will fight for him. He's going to have to, to do legislation. He's going to have to make decisions. All of that's going to come about. But when he occupies and sits on that throne, a sound bursts through the palace. Palace guards can hear it. Servants can hear it. The chefs in the back can hear it. When he cries out from his heart, I've got a horse, I've got chariots, I've got an army, I've got a palace, I've got a kingdom. Where is the ark? That, what? That's the best you could come up with? The ark? It had set for 20 years in Kerjath-Jerim, and the Bible says that Saul never made an attempt to go get it. You know why? Because to some, God had become just a piece of furniture. But to others, <laughs> it was their lifesaver. It was what they was all about. It was David telling them, uh, you can have all of this and uh, take it and bury it. But if I can't have the anointing and the presence and the spirit of the Lord, uh, then it's not worth having. I don't want to hear a song without the anointing. I don't want to hear a sermon without the anointing. And David is saying, if I can't have the presence and the glory of God uh, saturated in this palace, then nothing else matters. And I know Brother Chance has told you many times. We all know that he went to, to, to fetch the ark and bring it. We all know that story. He's sitting there thinking, and you can see people going, you know, he's got, he got a lot on his mind. Somebody else says, yeah, but something's got to be done about the ark. Because to David, it's not an object. To David, it's not furniture. To David, this is what connects me to the Almighty. And he decides to go and get it and bring it to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to have a good time, he said, but 
I, I, I got to get this here because I've got to have the presence and I got to have the glory and I can't be satisfied with it once a week. I got to have it every day that I'm king in Israel. I've got to have the glory and the anointing of the Lord. It's not enough just to come in here on Sunday and thank God for the singing and all of that. But I want God to know that when I walk out of here and Monday morning, I need that ark. I need it every day of my life because it's not an object. It's not a piece of furniture. God is not just some distant fairy tale character. <laughs> Somebody forgot to do their homework because they took that ark and put it on the back of a cart. The cows went to, you, you, you know the story. Anyway, he hit a bump in the road and looked like he was going to fall off the back of that cart. <laughs> a young guy, I don't know, user. You might say he just had a brain cramp. Didn't matter. Didn't matter how long you were without it. God's principle never changes. And the Bible says that Yuza reached out to stay the ark with his hand. Touched it. And God killed him. Because God is saying, I'd rather it fall to the dirt than to violate my command. And that is you don't touch it. This is sacred. This is something, when you walk into this house this morning, I know it may be taking some people some time, but there was anointing on this platform. You can feel the presence of the Lord. I was looking at expression on people's faces because you realize, I'm not here to see the decor. I'm not here to be entertained. I need to walk in here because I'm facing a hell. I'm facing adversity. But if I can get myself into the presence of the Lord, that Bible says there's peace. That Bible says there's joy. That by, that's my rescue. That, that's my hiding place. I'm here for the anointing. It's not an object. It's not a piece of furniture. That is what, that is what connects me to the heavenlies. And then when David three months later figured it all out, <laughs> they go back and get it. You know the story. They bring that in. He took off his his royal robe put on the ephod. He didn't want anybody seeing him as a king. He just wanted everybody to see him as going to church. They brought the ark into Jerusalem. Everybody showed up. David, you know the story, danced before the Lord with all his might. Shouted and hollered. People were excited. Everybody showed up. They got something to eat and drink. Went home full. Oh, you know the story. His, his little wife, she stood up in a window looking down. That just wasn't physical, that's also spiritual. Looking down on what was going on. David went in to bless his household and she, she lit into him. How dare you? Da, 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 da. <laughs> he sobered up enough to tell her, uh, let me tell you something. Before I met your daddy, before I married you, God was all I thought about. She wasn't barren, but the Bible says she had no children. She didn't give David any children because that king walked out of that room and never had anything to do with her because he's telling her nothing supersedes or takes the place of this right here. 
told you all of that. I could go on and on about David and all that. But I told you all of that. Now I'm going back. Because there was a moment in the history of the, that great nation Israel that their arch enemy, the Philistines, came and pitched their tents on one side of a valley and Israel on the other. War is breaking out. They go out there to fight. A trumpet is sounded. They retreat, which is not normal for God's kids. And when they look back in that valley, your Bible says 4,000 of their young men lay dead. 4,000. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Then some genius decided to have a spiritual moment. You know what we need to do? We need to go fetch the ark. Bring it down here. But here's what you forgot. God had always told you, when you're going to battle, you get that ark and put it on the shoulders of the Levites. And as you're headed to battle, you have the priesthood out front carrying that ark because God wanted you to know that no matter what you're having to go through, if you keep me out front and keep me first, everything else is going to fall into place. How dare you just want to call on me when you get in trouble? How dare you just want to give me any attention when things are going your way? God is saying, wait a minute, whatever's going on, you keep me out front. So somebody decided to go bring the ark. But to the ones that had it in charge of it, they were playing games with it. Hophni and Phinehas, the high priest's sons, Eli. All kind of sin was running rampant in the temple. They were the ones in charge of the church service. They were the master ceremony, so to speak. And so here the ark is brought down. And most everybody, it's just a piece of furniture. He says, okay, well, I, 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 I thought we could preach without praying. I thought all we had to do was memorize the song, and, and they'd like it whether we prayed or not. Uh-oh. Please buy the book. Don't get mad at me. So they brought the ark, and they set it out there. But God had already seen their hearts. You're not interested in a long-term relationship. You're just hoping I get you through this little problem you're in right now. And then you'll forget me. And they went back to battle. And the, the, the trumpet of retreat was sounded again. And with these young men with blood running down their faces and down their arms and shoulders and legs and barely able to make it back, they looked back into that valley and 30 more thousand of their young men Lay dead. Wait a minute. We just lost 34,000. Seems to be the makings of a church. We brought the, the box here. There it is. Oh, Eli, the high priest, the Bible says, and I'm not being mean but the Bible says he was heavy he was old and couldn't see somehow he'd managed to get up on a fence post I have no idea how that, how that happened <laughs> but there he was sitting and your Bible says see all this other stuff I told you about it already happened hadn't happened yet so I'm backtracking to tell you how sacred 
a move of God still is. And while he's there on that fence post, can't see, but he can hear. He hears a noise. Your Bible says that a messenger comes running. He sees Eli, the priest. He skids to a halt. And the priest says, what's happened? What's going on? And so, Sister Chance, the messenger has got to deliver and tell what has happened. So here he goes. He tells the priest, Israel has fled. What you hear the noise is that they're fleeing, they are retreating, and they're running from the enemy. That's not good. Oh, well, wait a minute. This, these, these are God's people. And then he says, and there hath also been a great slaughter. The, the 34,000, I told you, have died. The, the, the dead out there, the blood is flowing. There's been a great slaughter. He said, what are you telling us all this for, Brother Creek Boy? Yeah, but, but, but here's the deal. I read this over and over and over. I read it again this morning. And you realize something. Israel fled. Come on, Eli. Square your shoulders back. You should have opened your mouth and said, wait a minute. That's not what God's kids do. And then when there were, he was told there was a slaughter, no response at all. He doesn't say anything about them retreating. He says nothing about, if, if I understand, 34,000 young men have died. So that means somebody has got to bury 34,000 bodies. Children have lost their daddies. Wives have lost their husbands. Mothers have lost their sons. You could at least say, oh, God, no. 34,000 of our young, oh, my God. He could just picture himself going from house to house, tent to tent, hugging, trying to console, but nothing. He doesn't say a word. Young messenger said, and thy two sons, Hophni and Phineas, they are dead. <laughs> oh God. Just stand back, messenger, just stand back. Hold your arms. Bow your head. Give him time for that wailing sound of grief to explode from his chest cavity. As he screams, oh no, even though my boys were out of the will of God and doing things they wouldn't, sh shouldn't have done, but they my flesh and blood, oh my God, I've lost my boys, my sons, nothing. That's it, nothing. Doesn't say a word. But then your Bible says, this is where I come back to my little phrase. Because the Bible says that when he made mention, oh, by the way, Eli, oh, by the way, in passing, I thought I'd tell you, the ark has been taken. Your Bible says when he heard not that Israel had fled, 
Not that 34,000 had died. Not that he'd lost his two sons. But when he heard that that which connected them to the heavenly had been captured and taken and was gone. The Bible said that he fell off the gate backward, broke his neck and died because what that man is telling us, okay, they retreated, they got whipped, maybe we'll rise another day and and have a little victory. 34,000 died. They may not ever get over it, but we'll continue to live and we may not, you know, accept it, but we'll just keep right on going and my two sons that's been lost before. I love them. They're my dear boys, but I'll have to continue on living. But who in their right mind wants to raise kids without that anointing? Who in their right mind wants to have an army and there be no God? Who can comfort anybody when you know that the glory and presence of God has gone? Here's what I'm telling you on this Sunday morning. And thank Thank you for listening. Whatever we lose, make sure that you never separate yourself from the anointing and the presence. It's not an object. It's not furniture. His, the Bible says that his daughter-in-law, who is about to give birth, was near to be delivered. When she heard that the, not not her husband had died, but when she heard that the ark was gone, pains of travail hit her body. She gave birth to a son. And in those days, the, the, the ladies are gathered around, hey, you gave birth to a boy. Time to name him. The look on her face is telling you she's not mourning for her husband. She didn't go into travail and labor labor pain because of the loss of her husband. How can I raise this child and the glory and the anointing not be there? And she's just before she died, she spat out, Ichabod. Somebody turned and said, she, she wants us to say, what? And she breathed her last breath because she was saying, he's going to be forever memorial that the glory of God has departed and nothing matters if that's gone. I mean, I, I'm not stupid. I've been doing this. We've been, I've been in this 49 years preaching. But I felt something in that last song because... I need Jesus in a lot here. I, I need Jesus. I'm not saying it because I make anybody like me anybody. Ain't got nothing to do with it. But I felt an anointing and I felt a love. What I'm saying to you is, do you know why? It wasn't just the melody of the song, but the glory and the Shekinah and the anointing of God. Was in all. What I'm trying to tell you is, you can afford to lose some things, but not him. See, I I thought in prioritizing his message, he would have told him about the ark first. (laughs) 
some reason in his mind, he decided, oh, by the way, it's gone. Nobody's excusing David's sin with Bathsheba. Nobody's excusing that. Nobody's excusing any of his sin. It happened. Flesh got the best of him. And the one thing that was so neat about David, <laughs> he knew how to repent and realize the only reason I killed the lion and the bear and the giant, the only reason. So your Bible says, I, I don't know. Some people are enthralled with physique. I don't know if Samson was six foot eight, 310 pounds, 25 inch bicep. I don't know. He, he might have been a very short person. I don't know. What I do know is everything he did was not because of his talent or his workout ethic. He would shake himself when a lion and men of Ashkelon and all these, any, the enemy come against him. When he, when he ripped those gates from their socket at Gaza and carried them 30 miles and drive, that wasn't because of his weightlifting ability. It was because when he shook himself, the glory and the anointing of the Lord would rest on him. better be careful how many conversations you have with the devil because when he laid his head down on Delilah's lap and the Bible says he told her all his heart and when he said if you cut my hair I should become weak like any other man you know what he's saying long as I kept the vow intact I'm not like anybody else and when the Philistines came in your Bible says, shook himself and knew not because God and the vow of God and the things of God had just become something to do in passing. Seen so much God, been around it so long, shouted so much in the past, talked in tongues in the past so much, I don't even need to do it anymore. I've shouted and loved God so many years, it's just, forget it. And when the enemy put their hand on him, which they were never able to do, and gouged out his eyes and flung him to the bottom of a dungeon grinding at a millstone. One, one, one little verse there that, that, that just gives me hope that we're not going to lose this. The Bible says, how be it his hair begin to grow again. What are you saying? It all started coming back. And he did more in his dying than the whole time he lived because the anointing and the glory and the presence had come back. And when David realizes his sin, and I'm closing, I got to find an altar. I, I got to get along with God because I cannot let the presence of God become an afterthought. I cannot let the work of God and say, well, we had great revival in the past.
We had great church in the past. Somebody's got to stand and make a declaration and say, you know what? What got us here is what's going to keep us going. And if it was good enough to change my life, it's good enough to change everybody. This building was not built. It was built for every seat to be full. There's still a hungry, hurting world out there. And if you get God out in front and you get the glory where it belongs and you put the value back on the presence of God, God said, I'll add to the church daily such as should be saved. But it's got to become sacred again. And in Psalms 51, it's David's prayer and cry out to God. Where are you going, David? Where are you going? I have to find out and make sure he hasn't left me. My predecessor got so hungry to hear from God, Saul, that when he wound up at the witch's cave at Endor, a few chapters earlier tells you that was the element that Saul put out of Israel and that was witchcraft and witches and sorcerers he had them put out and put to death but now he is so desperate to hear and feel God he goes back to the very thing he hated he goes to the gates of hell just to feel a touch of the glory world and has to hear it said God has become your enemy so David doesn't have time as somebody cries and sees him running across the courtyard sire sire he didn't have time for counseling somebody sticks a piece of legislation in his face he doesn't have time to sign it he gets along with just him and God. I see him, throws the crown over to the side, scepter to this side, takes off that royal robe. He doesn't care about marble walls and floors and palaces and gold. He's there. I see him beating a floor with his fist before he starts. I see him looking around like a child thinking, oh no, oh no, what have I done? And then you hear him cry out, have mercy, have mercy. He starts, he starts scratching out that prayer. Bones have been broken. He, he's putting all kind of metaphors in there to paint you a picture. And then he cries out that famous phrase. Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. Renew within me a right spirit. And then I see him push himself up off that marble floor. And I see him walking around like a starstruck, glancing up and toward the heavens. Clean heart, right spirit. God, cast me not away from thy presence. He sees a crown over here. Take my crown. Take my scepter, take my robe, take my palace, take my money, take my gold, take my silver, but take not the Holy Spirit from me. 
that stand in this holy house. Could you stand? Well, I, I wanted to leave here shouting and climbing the walls, but I just, I just wanted to tell you, Monroe, one more time, just how sacred it is to feel the presence of the Lord and know you still have a connection. I don't know. I told her I have a Wednesday night Bible class and been doing it for a long time and we gather around a conference table and they just love it. They're so precious and about 10, 12, they show up and I give them various studies and word and talk, they ask questions and I told them the other night, I said, you know, and I mention Brother Chance's name all the time in the class, but you know, we've been together so long, been through so much together. I said, you know, I know how to have revival, but it's not the way they're trying to have it now. And, and I feel lost. Because I, I just, I don't want to be your life coach. I don't want to come out here when I know things aren't right and try to just make you feel good. Hug the dog, get the newspaper and just, I can't do that. If you don't get back the sacredness of prayer and fasting and giving and unfettered crazy worship and loving the house of God. That's why the devil has taken this pandemic and attacked the church. Because your Bible says, as you see that day approaching, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much the more because God knew way back yonder the vital, how important it was to be together and be in his house. I'm not saying this to be mean. There's people that got, there's churches and preachers that's got more in their men's bathroom than I have on ch in church membership. But I ain't figured out how to have revival on Facebook. When somebody told me when I called him and said, oh, Brother Terry, I, I saw the service on Facebook. And I don't know. I don't mean to be rude. I said, yeah, but it ain't like being there. So I, I did something the other day, and I'm sure made some folk mad at me, but they started setting all that up, and I said, no. Unless you got one foot in the grave. It's very simple. I don't know about y'all, but when this whole thing started and, and they won't, not want people to go to church, but you can still go to various places out there, shop, buy groceries, whatever. Church wasn't necessary anymore. I got up and told our church since, you know, COVID-19 gets up and says in their meeting, <laughs> don't go to Walmart. 
let's go to let's go to New Life Praise Center. I said, since the virus only shows up at churches, I'm just decided to make it a member. <laughs> so we got 19 here today, members of the church. COVID-19. If y'all find him, shake his hand. Because this is the only place he shows up. Well, stop being facetious, I know. But I said, somebody has got to get their hunger back. So I'm, I knew when this happened, something was happening in our little congregation. I'm standing behind my little podium in that class, and they're all gathered around the table. And it's not screaming or hollering, no PA system, no music, no nothing. It's just time to teach. It's this chance I opened up a book, and I said, I want to read to you what Christ actually did on the cross. And I got real emotional reading it because I just, I was reading that story and I thought, oh my God. And all of a sudden I heard uncontrollable sobbing. And I looked around that table and people had their heads down and they were sobbing, crying. One of them said, been in the church for a long time. It just now dawned on me what he did for us at Calvary. And I realized at that moment we can't lose that sensitivity, that specialness, that value system of the ark. Knowing this morning that I felt the presence and the anointing of God, I didn't come here just to pat my hands and make anybody feel good. I wanted us together to say, God, this is still sacred, and I don't want to ever lose it. I want to see it break out in revival like you never imagined. I love you, Monroe. Thank you for listening. But if you're in this house today from the balcony to the floor, whatever, and you're just saying, you know what, Brother Creekmore? I don't want to lose this. In fact, I want to wrap my heart around it like never before. And I want to tell the praise singers, I don't care if you sing Jesus Love Me. I'm going to wrap my arm around it. I don't care if my pastor just gets up here next Sunday and says, here's my word for you. Jesus, I'm going to wrap my arm around it. Nobody has to entertain me. Nobody has to make me feel good. I just want to walk in here and say, where's the ark? Where's the glory? Where's the Tell me what I need to do to get to where he is. As I turn it back to your pastor, would you storm down here to this front, social distance, ever how y'all do it? But would you raise your hands as you're walking down here and say, God, please take everything, but don't leave me. I've got to have you, your glory, your anointing, your presence. I love you, Monroe.